want you to turn with me to the book of Matthew. A very simple verse, Matthew 22 and verse 14. Matthew 22 and verse 14 says, For many are called, but few are chosen. For many are called, but few are chosen. The word called frequently is found in the New Testament. I think if we include the words call, calling, called, it's more than 280 times the word call is found. And this word called holds a prominent place in the gospel or uh, in the doctrine, the theology of the gospel. And called is, a, uh, is an important part of our Christian vocabulary. We, we use that word all the time, talking about the things of God. Is he called? I'm not called to do that. What is your calling? We, we often speak of callings. So it would help us, and we'll just begin today, maybe if Lord willing we'll continue next week, or the weeks to come, I should say. But it would help us to have a better understanding of what it means to be called. Called. Now, the Greek word kletos, kletos, K-L-E-T-O-S, T-O-S, K-L-E-T-O-S, simply means to be invited. To be invited. So, this verse that we read to you, Matthew 22, verse 14, is taken from a parable that Jesus taught, the parable of the wedding feast. And there's a lot you can learn about what it means to be called by studying this. In verse 3 of the same chapter, Jesus tells us in this story that the son of a king was to be married. So the king, in verse 3, says, sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Actually, in the original Greek language, he sent his servants to call the called. To, it's the same Greek word, basic word. To call the called. So what does that mean? Well, it means the guests to the wedding had been previously officially requested, you know, to attend the marriage party. So in our day, they got a card, you know. Uh, somehow they were notified, right? But then at the scheduled time for the festivities to begin, those same people were summoned, right? They, they were sent for. The servants personally went and urged them, come now. This is the time. Please, please respond by showing up. And of course, in this parable, Jesus tells us that those who were invited refused. They were the called who did not respond to the call. They refused. They had various excuses. So Jesus tells us in this story, so the king sent some more servants to give it a second try and informed the invitees, you know, everything's ready. All the preparations have been made. It's showtime. Come on. It's time. Please come. But the king's servants were ignored. Or even worse, they were abused and some of them were killed. 
Man, you got to really be against a wedding to kill, you know, someone to invite you. I mean, it's... So in his anger, in verse 7, the king took revenge on these ungrateful people, Jesus said. And he sent troops to destroy them, and he says to burn their city. Then the king told his servants in verse 8, those who had been invited were not worthy. In other words, they proved, even though they didn't come, they proved by their actions that they did not deserve to even enter the king's house. See? So the king instructed his servants in verse 9, Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. Invite as many people as you can find. And again, in the Greek language, it literally says, call. Call them, whoever you can find. So the, the servants were to gather together as many people as possible. In fact, verse 10, the king instructed them whether they're good or bad. So unlike before, the first people that were called, now the king does not discriminate. These potential guests don't have to be well-respected people. Evidently, the first group was different, but now they don't have to be well-respected. They don't have to have a notable place in society. So at this point, you know, the time, it's the 11th hour. The, the food is getting cold. The groom, the son is getting impatient. You know, it's time to start. So, you know, I just want as many warm bodies as I can find to fill the hall. That's how every pastor feels on Sunday morning at 9.30. <laughs> so it would be embarrassing if, if the auditorium, the, the house was not filled for such an auspicious occasion. See, that's, that's the idea. Now, obviously, this is not a lesson on being a better event planner. Although maybe you could learn something from that. But that's not the point of this story. This is a parable about salvation see you don't really need jesus to teach you how to have a good wedding that's not what he's talking about the king in this story obviously it's not too hard to figure out obviously that represents our heavenly father but interestingly enough our relationship with christ is compared to a wedding that's very interesting that's what this is talking about our connection with Christ is compared to a marriage see now you know this that when a man and a woman come together in matrimony the scripture says and the two shall become one flesh God said that you know in the very beginning so these two are connected together physically. He didn't say they're one heart. He says they're one flesh. 
See? So me and my wife are one flesh. The problem is sometimes we can't figure out whose flesh is going to be the one flesh. Anyways. <laughs> and um, by the way, that's why people who have been divorced, and I don't mean this to sound critical of anybody. I understand the circumstances that people go through. But that's why many people who have been divorced say it felt like I was being torn apart. Or some might say it was like something inside me died because they're not just two anymore, they're one. And in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, God said he hates divorce. New King James Version says that. He hates divorce. He didn't say he hates the divorcee because he doesn't. And it takes two to tango. Sometimes it's not that I divorced the other person, but the other person divorced me, right? And, and, and there's mitigating circumstances to that. He hates the concept of divorce because it does such damage to people. There, there, there are really no winners in a divorce. And of course, this is breaking a covenant, the most sacred of all agreements. While we're on the subject, and you'll forgive me, but let's just be a little frank about some things, okay? I, I haven't forgotten my topic. But this is also why sex outside of marriage is so damaging. And also why sex inside of marriage, you'll forgive me, is so necessary. Y'all look like you're, you could hear a pin drop. But, but, but this is the, the fact. Because physical intimacy is like the super glue, the dendrite, that binds your soul to your mate. See? Think about this. Some of you are looking at me real strange. Fine, go ahead, keep looking. You would think, if you didn't know any better, how many of you are married, by the way? We can tell by that look on your face. <laughs> you would think that the Apostle Paul would tell Christian couples, Christian married couples, to abstain from sex. You know, that's dirty. That's, that's not, or that's not spiritual. I recommend that you abstain from sex. But he doesn't. He actually... encourages it. <laughs> it's so funny. The young people who are not married are kind of rosing their cheeks, and the married couples are going. <laughs> it takes a certain amount of courage to stand here in front of all you and say this, you know. See, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, do not deprive one another. He's not talking about rice and pork right now. He's talking about physical intimacy. He further says that now that you're married, and maybe some folks need to be reminded of this, now that you're married, you do not have exclusive authority over your own body. Your spouse has some say in this matter. The husbands are really smiling now. <laughs> be careful. <laughs> right? So that's interesting. Okay, but that's not my topic. This is my topic. In a similar way, when a person is joined to Christ, when he's saved, 
he becomes one with Christ spiritually. In fact, that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I quoted verse, uh, chapter 7, but this is now chapter 6, verse 17, says, we are in Christ, and he, by the person of the Holy Spirit, is in us. We are connected. So like, just like what happens to the husband affects the wife, what happens to the wife affects the husband, there's a connection there, right? In, in my house... My wife and kids say, when daddy's not happy, nobody's happy, you know. And, but, you know, in the same way, you are connected to Christ. It's not just he's the savior of the world and he's, you know, over there and I'm just down here and I believe in him. There is a, real, a connection, a spiritual umbilical cord. What, if, what happens to you affects him. What, what he has done affects you. Who he is affects you. Praise the Lord. Amen. Does that mean we're in union together? Does that mean we're the same person? No. Me and my wife are not the same person. You and your wife are not the same person. But we are in an, a relationship together. We are more than friends. So we're more than friends. So like, I, I can't remember where I went somewhere last summer. Uh, we went, checked into a hotel in America. And uh, at the counter, the, the, the woman behind the counter said, and who is your friend? And I said, that's not my friend. I don't share a hotel room with friends. This is my wife. <laughs> it's real quiet in here today. Hallelujah. God bless you, everybody. Amen. See, uh, my wife and I are in a covenant relationship. And I'm in a covenant relationship with the Father through Christ. So are you. Amen. You're not just a Christian. You're married. You're not dating Jesus because he's not interested in dating you. You know, let's just go out to eat. Let's just get together every Sunday this year. Let's get together Sundays and Wednesdays and holidays. He's not interested in that. I don't see my wife only on weekends. Right? We're, we're connected together. We live together. Right? Some people come to the altar and get Jesus. And then they leave Jesus at the altar and say, I'll see you next week. It doesn't work that way. Thank you for your enthusiasm. Nod, breathe, smile. Don't look so discouraged. Amen. Praise the Lord. All right. So the figure of a wedding, the symbol, is fitting. It's accurate. It's a good one to describe our relationship with Christ. So let's go a little further. This helps to answer, or at least partially, answer a question. Can a man lose his salvation? Well, we'll answer that question with a question. Can a married man get divorced? Yeah, happens all the time. But it's not a simple matter. right? Just because, just because somebody leaves, that doesn't make you legally divorced. Right? I mean, if you and your wife, you and your husband have a little argument, that doesn't mean you're divorced, does it? Right? If, you're, if, you're, if your husband says something unkind to you, that doesn't mean you're divorced, right? If he sleeps on the couch tonight, that doesn't mean you're divorced. Otherwise, most of us have been divorced many times, right? I mean, <laughs> that, that's, that's not what it is, amen? 
Praise the Lord. So we are saved by faith in Christ. But listen carefully. If a mature Christian, not a baby Christian, if a mature Christian, I don't just mean mature physically or emotionally, I mean spiritually. If a mature Christian who has been baptized with the Holy Spirit, who knows the Word of God, who has experienced the moving, or especially the gifts of the Holy Spirit, if that person turns away from Christ, I don't just mean he, he commits a sin or, or he fails in some way. If he rejects Christ, where he no longer believes in Him, then he would be, we could say, divorced. And he would have no further opportunity to be reconciled. I say, how do you know that? I know it from reading Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. I'm not going to take a lot of time to read that. You can do so when you get a chance. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. Also, Hebrews chapter 10 says a very similar thing. However, I said a, a mature Christian, baptized with the Holy Spirit, knows the Word of God, has gifts of the Spirit operating in his life, and then rejects Christ. So in other words, I didn't say he lied, he stole something, he committed some other sin. He is rejecting Christ. He no longer, he denounces Christ. He no longer believes in Jesus. Then in that case, he would be lost. So very few people are in this category. This is extremely rare, but it could happen. So just be aware of that. And I should mention this. There is... You're probably not aware of this. There is a movement afoot out there called deconstructionism. These are people, we're, we're seeing this a little more and more. If you go online, you can see things like this. These are people who call themselves ex-Christians, who deny that the Bible is inerrant. In other words, they think it's full of mistakes. They deny the deity of Christ, the reality of hell, judgment for sin, and so forth. And it's basically apostasy. They call themselves ex-Christians. I personally suspect that they were never actually born again to begin with, that they never had eternal life. I think some of these people, uh, maybe they just got swept up in the let's make Jesus popular culture, but they never really received Christ as their Savior. I don't know. I don't know. But we are living in the end times. Are you listening to me? Now, let me move on. Later, Jesus was teaching about his second coming and signs of the end, and he told another parable that also had a wedding theme, which is interesting. Another parable also has a wedding theme, you see. And it's the parable that we commonly call the parable of the no lights, okay? The parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25. And so, basically, let me tell you the story. There were ten young women who took lamps and were waiting for the groom to come. Now, there's some thoughts here that are helpful to learn. Typically, in ancient times, 
the Jewish marriage arrangement was finalized ahead of time, long before. For example, you'll remember this. The Bible tells me that Joseph was betrothed, that's the word used, betrothed to Mary. Yet Matthew chapter 1 verse 19 calls Joseph her husband. And when Joseph learned that Mary was with child, that she was pregnant, uh, he considered divorcing her. He didn't do it because an angel told him, don't do it. But he can, you engage people don't get divorced, or they can't get divorced. See, they were married ahead of, uh, beforehand, you see, but they hadn't come together yet. See, according to the tradition of that time, the bride lived with her family for a year before the husband and wife came together to live as husband and wife, as a couple. But on the appointed time, the, 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 the groom would come to take his bride. And she would be followed by an entourage of her, like, you know, ladies-in-waiting, her, her maidens that would follow her to, the, to his house. We're going to go to his house now. So, so they were actually married a year ago. She's been living with her family, right, waiting for him to come on the appointed time, and she's, he's going to come and take her away, take her to his house now, and she, she'll be followed by a procession of her you know, maidens of honor, so to speak, and, and they will go to his house there. There will be festivities, and then after that, the marriage will be consummated. They're going to live together now you know, as, as man and wife. You see, also, since the days of Jacob, I suppose, in fact, even now, Jewish weddings were typically held at night. They were held, Jacob got married at night. How do you know? Because when he woke up the next morning, surprise, surprise, you know, it wasn't who he thought it was, right? So, um, so since there were no street lights in the first century A.D., and they don't have, like, battery-powered torchlights, they have a little handheld lamp, basically a wick with a bowl of oil. And, and what I suspect is not only was that to light their way, you know, I mean, even in Dimapur, I wouldn't walk around here at night load shedding time without some kind of torchlight. You could step in the Nala and we That happened to me in Shillong. We all went to hear Reinhard Bonnke, great healing crusade. After the crusade, we were standing around near the bus. It was dark, pitch black, there's no light. And I took a step and fell in this giant nala. It's like a six-foot deep, five-foot deep nala. I just suddenly disappeared. The earth opened up and swallowed me. No one saw me. I thought I had died and I didn't go the right way, you know. And, 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 and when I hit the bottom of the nala, it was dry, praise the Lord. When I hit the bottom of the nala, I, I twisted my ankle. It was all swollen, as big as, you know, like a, like a grapefruit. And so I came hobbling back from the healing crusade, and Jeppy, with all her tender compassion and empathy, started laughing and said, everybody went to get healed, and you came back, you know, injured. So you want to carry a torchlight next time you go hear Reinhard Bonnke preach, that's for sure, you know. So, so they have to have that, you see. 
And, uh, but the problem is the groom came later than expected. See, he, he didn't come when they thought he would come. So instead of just like sundown, which would be typical, it's after midnight. And so, you know, they're waiting and everybody's getting, you know, drowsy and weary and they're having trouble staying awake. Just like that brother, no, sorry. Anyways, anyways, so they're, 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 they're dozing off. And they were awakened by the cry, here comes the groom. He's come, this is it, da 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 So we're supposed to get in line and work with the bride and we're gonna go to his house and the big thing begins. When they woke up, they all did their best to uh, get their lamps nice and bright. So they're like, you know, getting it, you know, make sure it's lit and everything. And some of them realized we're running short of oil, you know the story. So they were not prepared. Five of them were not prepared for the wait. They would have been okay except it took longer than they thought. And so they had to go get what was needed. They were not ready. In the meantime, the other five girls, they followed the groom with the bride into his house and the door was shut, leaving those who were unprepared locked out. So the main point of this parable is that Jesus is the bridegroom. And he's coming to get his bride. And we need to be awake and we need to be ready. And it seems like it's taking longer than we thought. And some get like drowsy and sleepy, but you want to be wise. Amen. So, hmm, now we're already married to him but we're staying with our spiritual family until he comes to collect us. And when he comes again, he's going to take us to his father's house. And when he brings us to his father's house, we will physically be transformed and we'll have a, a resurrected body like his that consummates our salvation. That's, that's the analogy. Are listening to me? Amen? So look at your neighbor and say, make sure you have enough oil in your lamp. Now some people, their batteries are kind of like flickering, aren't they? Amen. But you're here on Wednesday night, so that couldn't be your case. Now, let's go back to Matthew 22. Amen. And since we don't have any LEDs, I have no idea how long I'm preaching, so it, we may also not get out of here until after midnight. I don't know. <laughs> Matthew 22. So those who were first invited to the wedding feast but refused to come, that represents the Jews. It's very obvious. That's who he's talking to. It represents the Jews. The servants who went forth to call those invited... That represents the prophets and also those who were sent by God and who were persecuted, ignored, or sometimes even put to death. And notice in this parable, Jesus said that the king in that story, he destroyed these people and he burned their city. And it's very poignant. It's, it's very, it's, 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 it, it, it's kind of it's shocking. Forty years after those words came out of his mouth, 
Jerusalem was besieged by Roman legions led by a man named Titus, who eventually became emperor of Rome. And after several bloody encounters, the Romans breached the walls of Jerusalem. And they burned the temple to the ground. They looted everything. And those Jews who were inside Jerusalem, those Jews who were not slain, and Josephus was a, a, a historian employed by the Romans, Josephus says 1.1 million Jews died in Jerusalem. It was 70 AD, you see. And the rest were carted off as slaves. And, 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 the, and the people were scattered. And that was the end of Israel for 1,900 years. There was no nation of Israel. Forty years after he said these words, it's exactly what happened. You understand? Hmm. By the way, just a thought. The Bible tells me in Acts chapter 8, and verse 1, that after Stephen was martyred, there was a persecution, and the overwhelming majority of Christians in Jerusalem fled Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, who also later left the city. See, that means in 70 A.D., most Christians were not in Jerusalem anymore. God spared them from what was coming. Sometimes what seems like a bad thing might actually end up being a good thing. Are you out there today? Those servants, those who the servants found in the highways and byways, those are the Gentiles, the non-Jewish nations. And the call is the gospel. The call is the gospel. Now, some people try to make the gospel like a, a catechism, you know, like, a, like, a, like a lessons on learning all the tenets of faith. But the gospel is, is not a Bible study. It's an invitation. It's very simple. Come. It's ready. You know, we're waiting for you. There's a place for you. Come. In other words, people don't have to have a degree from the seminary before they can get saved. I think sometimes we're getting the cart before the horse. Let them come. Come to Christ. Receive Him. Take, a, take your place at the table. Now, after that, we can feed you with the Word of God, and you can learn what it means to be a Christian. Are you listening to me? Sometimes the church has made getting saved like climbing up this uh, rough and rocky mountain. And they've made getting backslidden like sliding down a greasy, slippery slope. It's not that hard for people to get saved. People that think so are usually jealous because other people are getting more saved, more people saved than they are. 
Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you for your enthusiasm. Please sit down. Amen. The reason many people in the world reject Christ is because they think Christ has rejected them. The church has not always done a good job. Notice the king in this parable, the king did not say, go to the nice neighborhoods. Go to the pleasant houses. And if you see some good people who seem like top-notch, good quality people, extend to them an invitation. You know, interview them, find out who they are, learn as much as you can about them. And if they meet our standards, then give them an invite. No, he said, good or bad, wherever you find them, bring them in. So in other words, that should be our attitude in evangelism. The good, the bad, the ugly, the highways, the back alleys, go and bring them to the wedding. Hallelujah. Amen. So notice he says this, our, our text, for many are called, but few are chosen. The selected were those who responded favorably to the call. God chooses those who choose Him. God chooses those who choose Him. Let me give you another scripture tonight. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. New English translation says this. He is the one who saved us and called us with a holy calling. See, he's not talking about two different things. It's one thing. The holy calling is the call to salvation. When we talk about are you called, what is the call? The first and most important call is the call to receive Christ. That's the most. And if you don't respond favorably to that call, no other call matters in your life listening to me? Hallelujah. Notice, who called us with a holy calling. If something's holy, then, you know, not only is it pure, but it's also something that's serious. It's not a joke. Something that, that should not be ignored, right? Not based on our works, but on His own purpose and grace granted to us in Christ. So we are the called because we responded favorably to the call. He sent his servants to call the called. See? And it's not because of any good thing we have done. It's because of his compassion and his undeserved kindness toward us. So, we who were not a people are now the people of God. Does that mean that God has withdrawn his invitation to the Jews? Well, I find the answer to that question in Romans chapter 11, verse 11. It says, rather, Paul says, no, not at all. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. The trespass he's talking about is rejecting the gospel. Because that fir the first ones who were invited rejected it, then the king said, all right, then 
They're not worthy. Let's go to whoever we can find. And Paul is saying, does that mean that the Jews cannot be saved? There's no hope for them? No, 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 not at all. But because they rejected the gospel, we have the opportunity to be saved, and we are saved so as to make the Jews jealous. What does it mean to be jealous? Has anybody here ever been jealous? Have you ever been jealous? You don't want to raise your hand. I understand. No, thank you, sister. I see that hand. <laughs> we'll call you up to the front later on. But right now, <laughs> if you're jealous, you see somebody who has something that you would love to have, and you don't have it. Right? You know, you, you, you feel bad. Hmm. You know? Some people, you know, have sort of an olive complexion. Some people like me are kind of like maybe a, a, a very, uh, 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 you know, white complexion. And some people have kind of a green complexion. So it should be that the Jews look at you and see how blessed you are. And like, that's what I need. In fact, it's not just the Jews, it should be the world at large. Because God didn't just save you and bless you and heal you and change your life only so that you could have a blessed and happy life. Sure, He loves you and that's true, but there is another reason. You're His best advertisement. The people just see you and say, I don't know what you got, but I sure want it. What's your secret? That's a wonderful thing. Unfortunately, so often in the church world, people say, I don't know what you've got, but don't get close to me. It might be contagious <laughs> because we look so sad. I said, in the church world, too many times Christians look really sad. I understand some tragic event comes and, you know, there's sadness. We have to walk through that. I don't mean that. I mean, they're just like permanently sad. What happened? Nothing. Just, just permanently. Got this sad, sad look on their face. And then they'll even go door to door. Hello. We're here from Spirit of Faith. Do you know Jesus? No. What is it? <laughs> Should I wear a mask? <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. So as to make Israel jealous. By the way, here's another point. I know lots of Christians who do not believe in financial prosperity. They get super uptight. If you talk about financial prosperity in church, they would get so angry. They would leave the service, jump in their BMW and drive away. I know many Christians who, 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 who really get uptight and talk about prosperity. They don't believe in that. I don't know one Jew who believes God wants you to be poor. And I have known a few. The first, I shouldn't even tell you this. It has nothing to do with the Word of God. The first, the first like, um, I shouldn't even tell you this. Years ago, the first like high school dance that I went to was with a Jewish girl. She tricked me. 
Leslie Goldberg, bless her heart, I don't know where she is today, bless her heart, she tricked me. I don't have time to tell you the whole story. You look like you want to hear the story. <laughs> yep, Leslie contacted me. She was just one of our friends. We're all like teenagers. And said, and she had a real husky voice, like a man's voice. Hey, John. She said, oh, our friends are all going to the dance at the school. Would you like to go too? And I didn't go to their school. But I said, okay. She said, good, that's fine. Then she called me up later and said, hey, John, I forgot to tell you, we have to dress up for this dance. And I said, uh oh, no problem. Just, and I said, okay, fine. Then she called up a little bit later and says, hey, John, actually, you have to bring a date to the dance, so you're going to be my date. <laughs> she said, but it doesn't matter. It's just that we have to do that like a formality. So I said, Okay. Then she called up later and says, Hey, John, you have to bring me a corsage for the dance, too. You have to bring flowers. And, I'm getting, and she's calling like every day. And one day I came into the house and my dad said, Hey, John, when you were out, a fella named Leslie called. <laughs> so I didn't bother to tell him that Leslie's a girl, you know, so I just said, Okay, thanks. So I'm all dressed up in my suit. This has nothing to do with the gospel. But I'm all dressed up in my suit, and I'm sitting at the dinner table. My mom says, doesn't John look nice? And my dad said, yeah, where is he going? He's going to the dance. Oh, great, great. Then my dad said, who, who is John taking to the dance? And my mom said, Leslie. And my dad's face turned, you know, pink, red, pink, bright. And he thought, you know, he thought something's wrong with his son, right? <laughs> and I said, <clears throat> Leslie's a girl. He went, praise the Lord. <laughs> I don't know what, and Leslie didn't believe in poverty either. But God bless her. <laughs> Why? Because their Bible tells them that God blessed Abraham. Guess what? Your Bible says the same thing. Amen. Amen. I don't believe that, that, that it's a sin to be poor. It's just extremely inconvenient. <laughs> Amen. So we should, we should make them jealous. I think spiritually first, but even every area of our life should make them jealous. Amen. Hallelujah. I need to move on. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Um, at the end of... Matthew 20, 22, uh, 22, sorry. At the end of this story, there's a little um, postscript. Kind of a little thought that's added here. Entering the hall filled with guests, the king saw a man not wearing a wedding garment. And in verse 12, he asked the man, friend. By the way, you know, when you hear that word like friend, it's, it's kind of scary. It's like when Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, friend, why have you come? Yeah, you understand, it's kind of scary. He said, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was like one of our staff members. He was speechless. <laughs> how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. 
So the Bible says, Jesus said, this man was thrown into a place of outer darkness where there's no light. That would be Dimapur. <laughs> where there's anguish and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, what it really means is Hades. So what about that? Because when I read the story, that doesn't make sense to me. All right. Nobody came to the wedding. So you told your fellows, you know, go high and low. Bring them in here. Whoever, whoever you can find, just fill this place up. So I could understand somebody that was invited to a royal wedding. You know, they got the card, they got the invite, and they show up, you know, in blue jeans and a T-shirt. Like, no, that's not appropriate. You can't come in like that. But somebody just grabbed off the street in desperation. Why would you, why would you, find, why would you find fault with that? Because, you know, you get what you get. But see, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, they're Jews. They're part of the Jewish culture, and it, their culture's not Naga culture. See, for Jewish weddings, it was the common practice to provide wedding garments for everybody invited. See, uh, when I got married, I got married in America, so we had, you know, like um, my... Um, you know, like several bridesmaids. I don't remember if there's two or three of them. And they all wore like the same dress. It's not a coincidence, right? We told them this is the dress you have to wear. Well, we paid for that, I, th I think, if I'm not mistaken. We paid for that dress like we, so that they all are in like kind of like uniform, right? And then me and the guys, we all, we, we didn't buy it, but we rented from a shop a tuxedo. And... I think we didn't buy, but it's not unusual for, the, for, for us in the wedding party to provide for them to, to, to rent the tuxedo, see? So, now we didn't do that for all the guests, but we did that for those in the wedding party, and that's, that's a very common thing. But in, in, in first century um, Israel, you paid for everybody. Remember like that Samson, when he got married to the, to the Philistine woman, you know, they had a riddle about, you know, give us so many uh, changes of garments, you know, like that, if you can answer my riddle. Because they were supposed to provide garments for everybody at the wedding, you see. Huh? So this man, it wasn't a question of, of lack of finances or something like that. It was a deliberate decision not to use what he was given. Now, so how, does that, how, do, how do we interpret that for us today? Well, here's a possible way to understand it. The Bible tells me that because you are in Christ, you are also, it uses the expression, clothed with Christ. Uh, your, trans, your Bible may say put on Christ, but actually it's the word in Greek, clothed with Christ. And, and real briefly, because my time is up, that clothing in the first century AD, especially like in Israel, even in Rome, clothing was more than just like something to cover your body and, and keep you warm or something like that or, or protection. Sure, it's like that, but it really is a uniform. You could identify people by what they wore. Remember that uh, a blind Bartimaeus was calling for Jesus to heal him, and then finally Jesus said, call him, and the Bible says that, uh, that the people said, you know, come, he's calling you, and if you'll notice very carefully, it says, he laid aside his, his robe or his garment, he laid it aside and went to Jesus. 
Usually we think this, that, 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 that like that shawl or, that, or, that, or the garment he was wearing was a beggar's uniform. It's, I don't know 100% whether that's true or not, but some people speculate that. And that that identified, because how would you know to give this guy money? But he's got that beggar's uniform on so we can spot him away that he's legitimately someone handicapped, someone in need. But he threw that away because I don't need that anymore because I'm not going to be a beggar anymore. And he did that before he was healed. See? So, so this man, the, the, the idea was he was given that identity in Christ and he threw it away. So like... Um, Going back to my own wedding, um, which was like you know, way back there. And um, so after the wedding, my wife and I got in a vehicle and we drove off and everybody waved goodbye and everything like that. And they painted like just married or something on the back window or something like that. We drove off, yay. And we went directly to my parents' house. My parents were still in the church. Everybody's still in the church. And when we got to my parents' house, I realized I didn't have a key to their house. So we're locked outside. And nobody's here, it's just me and Jeppy. Everybody, we didn't have any kids, right? Everybody is in the, is in the church. So I went to my neighbor's house. I never met him before. I don't even know, my dad's neighbor. I never met him, I don't, I don't know him from, from anybody. So me and Jeppy knocked on the front door. And when he opened the door, I said, excuse me, I'm your neighbor. And he just looked at me and Jeffy, she's in her white wedding dress. I'm in a tuxedo and he just began to laugh. <laughs> and I said, I'm locked out. And he said, wow, this is going to be one of those memories you'll never forget, you know. And so but the thing is, we were identified by our clothing. See, if I had come half pant and no shirt, I just, I just got married. You know, he was, get out of it, call the police, you know. <laughs> but we were identified by what we were wearing. This man was given a new identity in Christ, clothed with Christ, but he discarded that. And the king said, you can't come in here without that identity. I think that's what he's talking about. We are the called because God chooses those who have chosen him. We've responded to the call of God, the call of God to salvation. And I'll tell you later, that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. Now today, I don't think anybody in Nagaland at lunchtime, if they're hungry, would drive around looking for a wedding reception. I don't think anybody here would get in their car and let's just head on down this Nagarjan Road and oh, look, looks like a wedding. Let's just go because I'm hungry. Well, we, they don't know us. Well, tell the bride you're a friend of the groom. Tell the groom you're a friend of the bride. They'll never figure it out. In the meantime, we'll get a nice meal. I don't think anybody, you don't, you don't normally do that. You have to be invited. Now in Calcutta, they would do that. But you, but you have to be invited, right? The things that God has for us are by invitation only. Now concerning other areas of our life, many times we have tried to intrude into a place without an invite. 
That's certainly true when it comes to ministry. Or maybe you went to a particular area of ministry that you were not invited to. This life is a life of responding to God's call. It's a life of saying, yes, Lord. If you want, if you want your life to be blessed, just learn to say, yes, Lord. No more excuses. You know, I mean, there are people who are saved. Yes, they're going to heaven. But there's so many other things God's called them to, and they have excuses. I can't do that. That's nah, not going to work for me. It's no good. This is not, not a good time for me, blah, 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 blah. But that doesn't work. And now in this story, the king was angry, at the very least annoyed, in, in some cases very angry, with their negative response. If God calls us to service, calls us into different areas, this is not, this is not someone just sending you an SMS or a message on WhatsApp. This is like getting an invite from Buckingham Palace. Much, much better than that. And to just toss it aside would be the epitome of arrogance. Because if God calls you to anything, that is a tremendous honor. Being saved is, is a tremendous honor. So forget about this is what I did. This is, you know, I was, this is my culture. This is my background. He called me. He called me. Jesus said, you did not choose me. I chose you. From his perspective, that's what he would say. From our perspective, we would say, I responded to the call. And he accepted me. Amen? And I'm going to wear my wedding garment. And I'm going to keep oil in my lamp. Because real soon, you can just look at the news and tell, we're living on borrowed time. Very soon, the cry will go out, the groom has come. The son has come to take his bride home. And I want to be ready on that day. How about you?